0: Chapter ten of the Court by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter ten. Another Sawtooth Accident. Frank Johnson rose from the breakfast table, shaved a splinter off the edge of the water bench for a toothpick, and sharpened it carefully while he looked at Britt. You going after them posts, or shall I? He inquired glumly, which, by the way, was his normal tone. "'Jim and sorry ought to get the post-holes all dug today. "'One of us better take a look through that young stock in the lower field, too, "'and see if there's any more sign of blackleg. leg "'Would you rather do?' "'Brit chilted his chair backward so he could reach the coffee-pot on the stove-hearth. "'I'll haul down the posts,' he declared carelessly. "'They're easy-loaded, and I guess my back's as good as yarn.' "'All you gotta do is skid em down off'n the bank onto the wagon,' Frank said. "'I wished you'd go on up where we cut them last ones and get my sweater, Brit. I must have left it hanging on a bush right close to where I was working.' Brit's grunt signified assent, and Frank went out. Jim and Sorry, the two unpicturesque cowboys of whom Lorraine had complained to the cat, had already departed with a pick and shovel to their unromantic task of digging post holes each carried a most unattractive lunch tied in a flour sack behind the cantle of his saddle lorraine had done her conscientious best but with lumpy sourdough bread cold bacon and currant jelly of that kind which is packed in wooden kegs one can't do much with a cold lunch lorraine wondered how much worse it would look after it had been tied on the saddle for half a day wondered, too, what those two silent ones got out of life, what they looked forward to, what was their final goal. For that matter, she frequently wondered what there was in life for any of them, shut into that deadly monotony of sagebrush and rocks interspersed with little grassy meadows, where the cattle fed listlessly. Even the sinister undercurrent of antagonism against the court Could not whip her emotions feeling that she was doing anything more than live the restricted, sordid little life of a poorly equipped ranch. She had ridden once with Frank Johnson to look through a bunch of cattle, but it had been nothing more than a hot, thirsty, dull ride, with a wind that blew her hat off in spite of pins and tied veil, and with a companion who spoke only when he was spoken to, and then as briefly as possible. Her father would not talk again as he had talked that night. She had tried to make him tell her more about the sawtooth, and had gotten nothing out of him. The man from Whisper, whom Britt had spoken of as Al, had not returned, nor had the promised saddle-horse materialized. The boys are too busy to run in any horses. Her father had told her shortly when she reminded him of his promise. When the fence was done, maybe he could rustle her another horse. And then he had added that he didn't see what ailed Yellowjacket for all the riding she was likely to do. Straight hard work and minding your own business, her father had said, and it seemed to Lorraine after three or four days of it that he had summed up the life of a cattleman's daughter in a masterly manner, which ought to be recorded among famous sayings like War is hell and don't give up the ship. On this particular morning, Lorraine's spirits were at their lowest ebb. If it were not for the new stepfather, she would return to the Casa Grande, she told herself disgustedly. And if it were not for the belief among all her acquaintances that she was queening it over the cattle king's vast domain, she would return and find work again in motion pictures. But she could not bring herself to the point of facing the curiosity and the petty gossip of the studios. She would be expected to explain satisfactorily why she had left the real West for the mimic West of Hollywood. She did not acknowledge to herself that she also could not face the admission of failure to carry out what she had begun. She had told her father that she wanted to fight with him, even though fighting, in this case, meant washing the coarse clothing of her father and Frank, scrubbing the rough, warped boards of the cabin floor and frying ranch-cured bacon for every meal, and in making butter to sell, and counting the eggs every night and being careful to use only the cracked ones for cooking. She hated every detail of this crude housekeeping, from the chipped enamel dishpan to the broom that was all one-sided, and the pillow slips which were nothing more nor less than sugar sacks. She hated it even more than she had hated the Casa Grande and her mother's frowzy mentality. But because she could see that she made life a little more comfortable for her dad, because she felt that he needed her, she would stay and assure herself over and over that she was staying merely because she was too proud to go back to the old life and own the West of failure. She was sweeping the doorstep with the one-sided broom when Britt drove out through the gate and up the trail, which she knew led eventually to Sugar Spring. The horses, sleek in their new hair and skittish with the change from hay to new grass, danced over the rough ground so that the running gear of the wagon, with its looped long chain, which would later do duty as a brake on the long grade down from Timberline on the side of Spirit Canyon, rattled and banged over the rocks with a clatter that could be heard for half a mile. Lorraine looked after her father, enviously. If she were a boy, she would be riding on that sack of hay tied to the hounds for a seat. But, being a girl, it had never occurred to Britt that she might like to go, might even be useful to him on the trip. "'I suppose if I told Dad I could drive the team as well as he can, he'd just look at me and think I was crazy,' she thought resentfully." and gave the broom a spiteful fling toward a presumptuous hen that had approached too closely. If I'd asked him to let me go along, he'd have made some excuse. I'm beginning to know Dad. He thinks a woman's place is in the house, preferably the kitchen. And here I've thought all my life that cowgirls did nothing but ride around and warn people about stage hold-ups and everything. I'd just like to know how a girl would ever have a chance to know what was going on in the country, unless she heard the men talking while she poured their coffee. Only this bunch don't talk at all. They just gobble and go. She went in, then, and shut the door with a slam. Up on the ridge, Al Woodruff lowered his small binocular and eased away from the spot where he had been crouched behind a bush. Everyone on the Quirt Ranch was accounted for. As well as if he had sat at their breakfast table, Al knew where each man's work would take him that day. As for the girl, she was safe at the ranch for the day, probably. If she did take a ride later on, it would probably be up the ridge between the Quirt and Thurman's ranch, and sit for an hour or so just looking. That ride was beginning to be a habit of hers, Al had observed, so that he considered her accounted for also he made his way along the side hill to where his horse was tied to a bush mounted and rode away with his mind pretty much at ease much more at ease than it would have been had he read what was in lorraine's mind when she slammed that door up above sugar spring was timber by applying to the nearest forest supervisor a certain amount could be had for ranch improvements upon paying a small sum for the stumpage The Quirt had permission to cut posts for their new fence, which Al Woodruff had reported to his boss. As he drove up the trail, which was in places barely passable for a wagon, Brit was thinking of that fence. The Sawtooth would object to it, he knew, since it cut off one of their stock trails and sent them around through rougher country. Just what form their objection would take, Britt did not know. Deep in his intrepid soul, he hoped that the sawtooth would at last show its hand openly. He had liked Fred Thurman, and what Lorraine had told him went much deeper than she knew. He wanted to bring them into the open, where he could fight with some show of winning. "'I'll get Bill Warfield yet, and get him right,' was the gist of his musings. "'He's bound to show his head, give him time enough.' him and his killers can't always keep under cover let em come at me about that fence it's on my land the court's got a right to fence every foot of land that belongs to em all the way over the ridge and across the flat and up the steep narrow road along the edge of spirit canyon Britt dwelt upon the probable moves of the sawtooth they would wait he thought until the fence was completed and they had made a trail around through the lava rocks. They would not risk any move at present. They would wait and tacitly accept the fence, or pretend to accept it, as a natural inconvenience. But Brid did not deceive himself that they would remain passive. That it had been hands off the court, he did not know but attributed the court's immunity to careful habits and the fact that they had never come to the point where their interests actually clashed with the sawtooth. It never occurred to him, therefore, that he was slated for an accident that day if the details could be conveniently arranged. It was a long trail to Sugar Spring, and from there up Spirit Canyon the climb was so tedious and steep that Britt took a full hour for the trip resting the team often because they were soft from the new grass diet and sweated easily. They lost none of their spirit, however, and when the road was steepest, nagged at each other with head shakings and bared teeth and ducked against each other in pretended fright at every unusual rock or bush. At the top, he was forced to drive a full half-mile beyond the piled posts to a flat large enough to turn around, all this took time especially since caroline the brown mare would rather travel 10 miles straight ahead than go backward 10 feet britt was obliged to take it out of her with the rein ends and his full repertoire of opprobrious epithets before he could cramp the wagon and head them down the trail again at the post pile he unhitched the team for safety's sake and tied them to trees where he fed them a little grain in nose bags he was absorbed now in his work, and thought no more about the sawtooth. He fastened the log chain to the rear wheels to break the wagon on the long grade down the canyon, loaded the wagon with posts, bound them fast with a lighter chain he had brought for the purpose, ate his own lunch, and decided that, since he had made fair time, and would arrive home too early to do the chores and too late to start any other job, He would cruise further up the mountainside and see what was the prospect of getting out logs enough for an addition to the cabin. Now that Rainey was going to live with him, two rooms were not enough. Britt wanted to make her as happy as he could, in his limited fashion. He had for some days been planning a setting room and bedroom for her. She would be having bows after a while, when she got acquainted, he supposed. He could not deny her the privilege... She was young, and she was, in Britt's opinion, the best-looking girl he had ever seen, not even accepting Minnie, her mother. But he hoped she wouldn't go off and get married the first thing she did, and one good way to prevent that, he reasoned, was to make her comfortable with him. He had noticed how pleased she was that their cabin was of logs— She had even remarked that she could not understand how a rancher would ever want to build a board shack if there were any timber to be had. Well, timber was to be had, and she should have her log house, though the hauling was not going to be any sunshine, in Britt's opinion. With his axe, he walked through the timber, craning upward for straight tree trunks and lightly blazing the ones he would want, the occasional axe strokes sounding distinctly in the quiet air. Lorraine heard them as she rode old Yellowjacket puffing up the grade, following the wagon marks, and knew that she was nearing the end of her journey, for which Yellowjacket, she supposed, would be thankful. She had started not more than an hour later than her father, but the team had trotted along more briskly than her poor old nag would travel, so that she did not overtake her dad as she had hoped. She was topping the last climb when she saw the team tied to the trees, and at the same moment she caught a glimpse of a man who crawled out from under the load of posts and climbed the slope further on. She was on the point of calling out to him, thinking that he was her dad, when he disappeared into the brush. At the same moment, she heard the stroke of an axe over to the right of where the man was climbing. She was riding past the team when Caroline humped her back and kicked viciously at Yellowjacket, who plunged straight down off the trail without waiting to see whether Caroline's aim was exact. He slid into a juniper thicket and sat down looking very perplexed and very permanently placed there. Lorraine stepped off on the uphill side of him, thanked her lucky stars she had not broken a leg, and tried to reassure Yellowjacket and to persuade him that no real harm had been done him. Straight away she discovered that— Yellow Jacket had a mind of his own, and that a pessimistic mind. He refused to scramble back into the trail, preferring to sit where he was, or, since Lorraine made that too uncomfortable, to stand where he had been sitting. Yellow Jacket, I may explain, owned a Roman nose, a pendulous lower lip, and drooping eyelids. Those who know horses will understand. By the time Lorraine had bullied and cajoled him into making a somewhat circuitous route to the road, where he finally appeared some distance above the point of his descent, Britt was there hitching the team to the wagon. What are you doing up there? He wanted to know, looking up with some astonishment. Lorraine furnished him with details and her opinion of both Caroline and Yellowjacket. I simply refuse to ride this comedy animal another mile, she declared with some heat. I'll drive the team and you can ride him home, or he can be tied on behind the wagon. You won't lead, Ridd objected. Yeller's all right if you make up your mind to a few failings. You go ahead and ride him home. You sure can't drive this team. I can, Lorraine contended. I've driven four horses. I guess I can drive two, all right. "'Well, you ain't going to,' Britt stated with a flat finality that abruptly ended the argument. Lorraine had never before been really angry with her father. She struck Yellowjacket with her quirt and sent him sliding past the wagon, and the tricky Caroline, too stubborn to answer her dad when he called after her that she had better ride behind the load— she went on making yellow jacket trot when he did not want to trot downhill behind her she heard the chuck-chuck of the loaded wagon far ahead she heard someone whistling a high sweet melody which had the queer minor strains of some old folk song for just a few bars she heard it and then it was stilled and the road dipping steeply before her seemed very lonely its emptiness cooling her brief anger to a depression that had held her too often in its grip since that terrible night of the storm. For the first time, she looked back at her father lurching along on the load, and at the team looking so funny with the collars pushed up on their necks with the weight of the load behind. With a quick impulse of penitence, she waved her hand to Brit, who waved back at her. Then she went on, feeling a bit less alone in the world. After all, he was her dad, and his life had been hard. If he failed to understand her and her mental hunger for real companionship, perhaps she also failed to understand him. They had left the Timberline now and had come to the lip of the canyon itself. Lorraine looked down its steep, rock roughened sides and thought how her old director would have raved over its possibilities in the way of stunts. Jacket, she noticed, Kept circumspectly to the center of the trail and eyed the canyon with frank disfavor. She did not know at just what moment she became aware of trouble behind her. It may have been Yellow Jacket turning his head sideways and abruptly quickening his pace that warned her. It may have been the difference in the sound of the wagon and the impact of the horse's hoofs on the rocky trail. She turned and saw that something had gone wrong. They were coming down upon her at a sharp trot. Stepping high, the wagon tongue thrust up between their heads as they tried to hold back the load. Britt yelled at her then to get out of the way, and his voice was harsh and insistent. Lorraine looked at the steep bank to the right, knew instinctively that Yellow Jacket would never have time to climb it before the team was upon them, and urged him to elope. She glanced back again, saw the team was not running away, "'that they were trying to hold the wagon "'and that it was gaining momentum in spite of them. "'Jump, Dad!' she called and got no answer. Britt was sitting braced with his feet far apart, "'holding and guiding the team. "'He won't jump. "'He wouldn't jump. "'Any more than I would.' "'She chattered to herself, sick with fear for him, "'while she lashed her own horse to keep out of their way.' the next she knew the team was running their eyeballs staring their front feet flung high as they lunged panic-stricken down the trail the load was rocking along behind them brit was still braced and clinging to the reins panic seized yellow jacket he too went lunging down the trail his head thrown from side to side that he might watch the thing that menaced him heedless of the fact that danger might lie ahead of him also Lorraine knew that he was running senselessly, that he might leave the trail at any bend and go rolling into the canyon. A sense of unreality seized her. It could not be deadly earnest, she thought. It was so exactly like some movie thrill, planned carefully in advance, rehearsed perhaps under the critical eye of the director, and done now with the cameraman turning calmly the little crank and counting the number of film feet the scene would take. A little further and she would be out of the scene, and men stationed ahead would ride up and stop her horse for her and tell her how well she had put it over. She looked over her shoulder and saw them still coming. It was real. It was terribly real, the way that team was fleeing down the grade. She had never seen anything like that before, never seen horses so frantically trying to run from the swaying load behind them. Always, she had been accustomed to moderation in the pace and a slowed camera to speed up the action on the screen. Yellowjacket, Jacket, too, she had never ridden at that terrific speed downhill. Twice she lost a stirrup and grabbed the saddle horn to save herself from going over his head. They neared a sharp turn, and it took all her strength to pull her horse to the inside and save him from plunging off down the canyon side. The nose of the hill hid for a moment her dad, and in that moment she heard a crash and knew what had happened. But she could not stop. Yellow Jacket had his ears laid back flat on his senseless head and the bit clamped tight in his teeth. She heard the crash repeated in diminuendo further down in the canyon. There was no longer the rattle of the wagon coming down the trail, the sharp staccato of pounding hoofs. End of chapter 10 Recording by Tom Penn